We are now another month into 2014, and, uh, and we are calling 2014 at our church the year of Jesus. We started the very first Sunday of 2014 learning about Jesus, and 52 Sundays this year are going to be committed to learning something, not only about Jesus, who he is, his message, his life, his miracles, what he taught, but how to live for Jesus. So this summer, we've kind of detoured studying about the life of David so that we might know how to better live life for Jesus. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 7, because today we return where we began. The very first Sunday of the year, one of our elders, Robbie McCord, was on the stage, and he quoted for you the Sermon on the Mount, and we took the first 10 weeks of 2014 to teach through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And there are two verses in Matthew chapter 7 that we did not cover in depth, but today we're going to cover that Jesus spoke about that I think hold tremendous truth for us today. And today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and then we're going to relate what Jesus said to the life of David, and we're going to see why Jesus said what he did and how it relates to our life. If you don't have a Bible or ushers, have some that you can use. I'd love for you to have one today because we're going to read an entire chapter later. So if you need a Bible, just wave at our ushers. They'll give you one. Every Sunday we'll open God's Word and read it together. So have one on your phone or tablet or carry one in your hands. Uh, bring it with you. But today we start Matthew chapter 17, verses 13 and 14. And here's what God's word teaches us today. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few will find it. Let me read those two verses again. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many will enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few and only a few will find it. Here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, there are two ways to live your life spiritually. You can do it your way. You can do it the easy way. You can kind of do what everyone else is doing, but ultimately spiritually, that's going to lead to a life of spiritual destruction for you. Or you can do it my way, Jesus says. Uh, my way is going to be a little more focused. It's going to be a little more purposed. Uh, might be a little more difficult. But in the end, my way is going to be worth the way I ask you to live your life. If there's a big idea to today's message that I've put at the top of your sermon notes that are in the back of your bulletin, so take those if you haven't already. The big idea of Matthew 7, 13, and 14 is basically this. The power of God in our life is worth the pathway that God gives us to that power. That's the thought. The power of God is worth the pathway of God. Jesus said there's a way to do it spiritually that's wrong, and it's easy to do it that way. And there's a way to do it spiritually that's, that's correct. And it's a little more difficult to do it that way. But if you want the power of God, you have to walk the pathway of God. And while it's not easy, it is worth it every step of the way. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see this story not in a parable, but, but in history. We see this played out for us in the life of David, where David has an opportunity to receive the power of God the easy way. Or the hard way. We see David have the opportunity to do things God's way or to do things his way. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, he does both. And one, the broad path, leads to terrible destruction. And one, the narrow path, the difficult way, leads to tremendous blessing. So I want to show you that in the life of David. If you have your Bible, turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Way back in the Old Testament, um, after the first five books of the Bible, you're going to read um, first in Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and you're going to get into first and second Samuel. And in second Samuel chapter six, we see a story from the life of David that illustrates for us Jesus teaching in Matthew chapter seven, that we need 
to walk God's pathway if we want God's presence and God's power in our life. And 2 Samuel chapter 6 reads this way. We'll read through all 22 verses. We'll leave out verse 23. It says, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel. There were 30,000. He and all his men went up to Bala. might say in your Bible, Kiriath-Jerim, just another way to say the city's name, in Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who's enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. And they set the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Yuzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. And David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. Basically, they brought their band with them. Verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, that, this would have been his barn, Yuzah reached out and he took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Yuzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Yuzah. And to this day, the place is called Perez Yuzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed him in his entire household. Verse 12. Now, King David was told the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went up, went, went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and fattened calf wearing a linen ephod. It's like a robe. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, was watching from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and they set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisin to each person and the whole crowd of the Israelites. Basically fed them dinner. Both the men and the women and all the people went to their homes. Verse 20, when David returned to his home to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. I will celebrate before the Lord and I will become even more indignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you've spoken of, I'm going to be held there in honor. And then verse 23, it says, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children until the day of her life. Now, as we get into this study here, here's what we see. We see a picture of what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Jesus said, there's a really easy way to do things spiritually that are wrong, and it's going to lead to a life of destruction. And then there's a more focused, a more narrow, a more purposed way. And it's a little more difficult. It takes a little more time. It takes a little more effort. But if you do things my way, you're going to be radically blessed. If you do things your own way, it might not work out sometimes. We see David in 2 Samuel chapter 6 do things both his own way and God's way, and we see drastically different results in kind of the chapter that can easily be broken down between the broad road and the narrow road. 
And I want you to remember our thought that God's power is always worth God's pathway as we look at what life off of God's pathway looks like. You know, as we look at the broad path, we look at verses 1 through 7. And we see David and his men celebrating God without honoring God. And you say, what does life look like on the broad road, Christian? The broad road does not look like atheism. The broad road does not look like agnosticism. The broad road does not look like extreme liberalism in the face of Christianity. The broad road looks like people who want a little bit of God. They just want to do it their own way. And when you look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, you see a bunch of people who appear outwardly to really be celebrating God. But they're not honoring God. Look at verses 1 through 2 of 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. Say 30,000. This is a lot of people. Like, like this, this crowd of people would nearly fill Kaufman Stadium. I mean, you're talking about a large crowd of people that's come together to celebrate God. He and all his men went up to Bala and Judah in which to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who's enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Now, if we're just reading this as people who are interested in a little bit of history, like we like kind of the behind the story stuff, we would get to verse two and say, why was it there? Like David and his, here's what basically we read. David and his men went to get God who lived at this guy's house. Anyone who's reading the Bible wants to understand, we'll say, why, why is God living with him? Like what, what's going on here? What, what's he doing there? And if we take a little bit of flashback back in time, we ask the question, how do we get here? And we find out that 20 years earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 6, uh, it, it's a nice little correlation because 1 Samuel 6 and 2 Samuel 6 are the same story 20 years apart. We see that the ark of God had basically become the good luck charm of Israel. The ark of God was something that was celebrated, but it was not honored. And you might remember during Easter, during our Easter season, I did a series called The Veil, and I taught about the things in the tabernacle that taught us how to worship God and honor God. And one of those things was the ark of God. I think they've got a picture of it on the screen. This kind of sat in the Holy of Holies, and God said, this symbolically is where my presence will dwell. And it was in a much larger kind of thing that was called the tabernacle, kind of a big courtyard, sat inside a tent, and the priest would go in. And when Moses led the people out of Israel, and he said, like, God, our people can't really see you. They don't know how to worship you. What do you do? God said, build the, build the tabernacle, build the ark, build the stuff. This will be how we interact with each other, and this will be how you honor me and how you'll know that I'll stay with you. But over the course of a few hundred years, the people of Israel, basically, they stopped worshiping God, but they still needed God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 6, they were engaged in an army with the people of um, Philistia, uh, which is, which is kind of crazy. Phil the Philistines lived in the modern area of the Middle East known as the Gaza Strip. The Israelites lived in the, the modern area of geography known as Israel. And the people in, in Israel and the Gaza Strip, like they were at war with each other. So not a lot has changed from 1 Samuel chapter 6. And the people of Israel were losing. And their secret weapon militarily was, was not the Iron Dome to stop all the rockets from being fired, but, but their, they thought secret militarily was the presence of God in the Ark of God. So one of the commanders got the idea to bring the Ark of God to the battle, and they said, basically, let's, let's take the Ark of God from where God said it's supposed to. We know how God said this is supposed to operate, but here's our idea. Let's go ahead and bring God to battle with us. Because if God will come to battle with us, like we'll win, this is going to be great. So they took God, celebrating who they thought God was without honoring took him to the battle line, and they lost, and the Philistines captured the Ark of God. Now, they did not capture the presence of God, but symbolically, they, they captured this little idol that Israel had been worshiping. 
And for seven months, it lived in Philistia. And every place the ark of God was, the people of the Philistines were cursed because they didn't honor the God of Israel properly. So the people of Philistia said, we got to get this out of here. So they basically, they built a cart. They, they strapped it to some cows. They put the ark on it. They kind of slapped the cows on the rear and said, get out of here. And it took it back to Israel. And there's some farmers in Israel in a little community called Bet Shemesh. Every year we go to Israel, we drive by this place on the way to the Valley of Elah where David fought Goliath. There's some people farming in Bet Shemesh, and all of a sudden, here comes the Ark of God. And they're like, no way, there's the Ark of God. And everybody gets excited because the Ark of God just shows up after seven months. And they start praising God, and they start worshiping, and they build an altar, and they were singing songs, and they were celebrating God. And then somebody got the idea to try to open it. They were like, we should see what's inside. Now, I don't know that they were Nazis like in Indiana Jones time when they wanted to open up the Ark of God, but somebody's like, let's see what's inside. They were celebrating God without honoring God. And when they lifted the lid of that, God literally cursed the men who refused to honor him as God and it killed them all. And they all said, whoa, we don't want this thing. Leave it here. And the closest house was Abinadab. So they said, throw this in your garage and like cover it up. Like this is not good. And for 20 years, it had been there at his house. And David has now conquered Jerusalem. And David says, you know, like we're in this city. We believe God has done this. But symbolically, like the presence and power of God is in it. We need to get the ark. So they go call Abinadab. Hey, is that, is that thing still in your garage? Yes, it is. So he said, let's go get it. So we see this unbelievable celebration. Like nothing in 20 years has happened this exciting in Israel. They take the praise band. They, they take the, the praise team. And they get the ark. And look at verses 3 through 7. Here's, here's what they did. Celebration, yes. Honor, no. It says they set the ark of God on a new cart. And they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. And David of all, and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, systems, symbols. I mean, this, can you imagine the Sprint Center packed to the gills plus 12,000 with the greatest worship team in the history of the world, with everyone worshiping with all their might? I mean, like this was the greatest celebration of God that Israel had ever seen. But it was celebration without honor. Verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and he took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Verse 7, and the Lord's anger burned against Uzziah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. The scene was one of celebration, but the heart was not one of honor. And it's so interesting how if we only look at the scenes of celebration but we don't see through to the heart how often our lives look like they're celebrating God. One of my pastoral coaches is a guy by the name of Jimmy Dodd who's preached here several times this year. He told me he was doing a staff retreat with a church out west a few days ago. And one of the things that this church staff did is he, to get to know each other, they all had to choose what Disney character best represented their life. So he asked me that question, Christian, what Disney character best represents your life? I, I, I literally I have no clue. I don't know Disney characters enough. And he said, there were, I think, 16 or 18 people. He said, guess what the number one answer was? The thing that was answered more than anything. What Disney character most represents your life? And I said, I have no clue. And he said, it was Aladdin. I said, really? He said, yeah, it was Aladdin. And he said, here's what, here's what the people told me. He said, when I go to church on Sunday, um, people think that I'm someone who I'm not who I'm not really, because I present differently around church people than the person I really am when I'm not at the palace. And in reality, God to me more is probably like a, like a genie and a, I call on him when I need him. 
um, it, when I need a wish granted. But probably Aladdin is a good picture of my Christianity. Now, I don't know about you, but I heard that and I thought, hmm, like that challenged my heart. I was like, wow. And Lord, I don't want to be like Aladdin. Like, I, I don't want to show up for the celebration of some big Christian when in reality I leave and I'm not. I don't want to treat God like a genie in the bottle. Like, I'll call on you when I need you, but just like, you know, sit on the shelf when, when I don't need you. And this is what was happening in Israel. The people of Israel were worshiping the box, not the God who is in the box. And so often we come around and we get really excited about the church or we get excited about the service, or we get excited about the worship, or we get excited about the message, and we leave and we forget the God of the church and the worship and the message, and like we, we celebrate, we have these huge celebrations of God with a life that doesn't honor God. And the reality is when we embrace a relationship without God, without a reverence for God, it allows you to celebrate God without honoring God, which is not a form of biblical worship. When you celebrate the things of God without honoring the person of God, this is not a form of biblical worship. I had a professor in college relay the scene of 2 Samuel 6 this way. He said, it would be like inviting your former mistress to your anniversary dinner with your wife. You're celebrating something, but you are not honoring anybody. And a lot of us, we have a lot of, we, we celebrate a lot of dinners with God, but we don't honor him with our life. And the Bible says this is not, this is not worship. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul had started a church in the town of Corinth. And in the town of Corinth, very much like the United States of America today, there were lots of options for moral depravity. And the people had got really good at doing church one way and living life another way. And Paul said, you can't do that. And in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, he says, therefore, since we have these promises, what are the promises? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the promise that the Spirit of God lives in you, the promise that the the presence of God is with you, the promise that the power of God can be with you. Paul says, since God has promised you all these things, you got to do life his way. Since we have all these promises, dear friends. Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of a reverence for God. Perfecting holiness, why? Because because of what God has done for us and what God has told us to do. So many of us, we celebrate God on Sunday and we are irreverent people Monday through Saturday. It's just the reality of, of, of church today. Some of us celebrate God on Easter, and we are irreverent people 364 days of the year. Some of us worship on Sunday morning, and we are irreverent on the softball field Sunday night. The people of Israel were celebrating God in an irreverent manner. They celebrated him without honoring him. Folks, you need to know that Jesus did not die on a cross so you could have a relationship with God without having to honor God. This is not the eternal deal that's been made. I'll die on a cross. You can do whatever you want. No, Jesus said, I will take your punishment and then you will turn and you will honor God with your life. You'll honor God with your relationships. You'll honor God with your responses. You'll honor God with your finances. You'll honor God with your time management. You'll honor God with your serving. You'll honor God with your sacrifice. Why? Because he deserves it. And this is how you worship. This is how you honor God. It's way easier to celebrate than to honor And David was taking the broad road. They were celebrating, but they were not honoring. And unfortunately, this is so much of what postmodern Christianity looks like. We have probably the biggest, baddest Christian celebrations in the history of the world in domes and stadiums across the country with women's events and and men's events and college events. We, We celebrate heaven and then go live like hell. That's how I've heard it said. 
We celebrate without honoring. Can't do that. Why? God, God says so. Public celebration of God without private worship of God in your own life keeps your life from honoring God. So Sunday morning's not enough, folks. Celebration's not enough. Honor has to come with it. The people of Israel were not honoring God. They were celebrating a God that they, that they, that they believed they could get close enough to that they could just reach out and touch, even though God said, you can't do that. They were like, God, no, we're going to celebrate. We're just going to kind of do this our own way. God said, no, you're not. Now, spiritual honor is next level Christianity, but it's a level that has to push through, point number two, because on the broad path, you see people who have spiritual desire without a spiritual willingness to do what's demanded of that desire. They have spiritual desire. God, I want all these things from you, God. And God says, all right, well, then do this. Yeah, I don't really want to do that. Like, I want all this stuff, but I don't really want to do that. Look at verses 8 through 11. And by the way, this is David. Like, we love David. This is David we're talking about. It says, so David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? And he was not willing. Man, if you have a pen, you need to underline that. He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, folks, there's no question that David wanted the blessing of God on his life. Like, there's no question. David, do you want God to bless you? Yes, of course. There's no question that those of you in here today, probably 99% of you, if not 100%, you want the blessing of God on your life. You want the presence of God in your life. You want the power of God in your life. That's not the question. Sadly, though, there's no question that David was unwilling to be close to God on God's terms in 2 Samuel chapter 6. David came to God and he said, God, I desire to have your presence near me. God, I desire to have your power on me. God, I desire to be close to you. And then God said, well, here's exactly how you do that, David. And David said, he had more guts than most of us today, if that's what it means to really be close to God, I'm not ready for that right now. And he walked away. And it said, David, given the choice to be close to God on God's terms or to be distant from God on his own terms, David said, I'm not willing to do that right now. He was unwilling to do life God's way. And I give him credit for having the guts to say that. And the reality is, there are many people who have walked out of this church and other churches and churches for hundreds of years because they got to the point of where David was, that they heard this is what real Christianity is. This is what real discipleship is. This is what real commitment is. And they said, I don't want to do that. And they walked away. I applaud them for their honesty. And there are probably some people in this room today who when you hear what real Christianity is, you need to be honest enough. Say, it's just not for me. And just don't play the game. It's not going to get you anywhere. You might learn the Bible. You might have some good moments on Sunday. But if you're not willing to follow God God's way, you're not going to get God is what David is telling us here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. David wanted the blessing of God. He just didn't want to do what God, he didn't want to do it God's way. And this was an exact repeat of 1 Samuel 6. People of Israel wanted the blessing of God. They just weren't willing to do it God's way. And for 20 years, people of Israel stiff-armed God. They said, God, if these are your terms, we say no. David, for 90 days, said, God, if these are your terms, I say no. And during these 90 days, in a decision that took three months, 
to enact. These 90 days would change David's life forever. Now, some of you, you're living in this figurative 90-day time period. Here's what I mean by that. God has clearly shown you a decision you need to make. God has clearly shown you a change that has to take place. God has clearly shown you that to go to the next step of your Christianity, this is the next thing for you, you are aware of what it takes, but you are not willing yet to do what it takes. You're in, lim- you're in spiritual limbo. You're in this 90-day window of saying, I want the power of God, I want the presence of God, I realize now that's what it takes, and I just don't know. And you're, and you're in between. One, you're, in one, you're in between one thing and another spiritually. You know, as I, as I look at life, as I look at spiritual life, as I look at my spiritual mentors and people I have so much respect for in our church who are growing spiritually, it's interesting that when you have a willingness to pursue a desperate desire, it always brings you to what I call this push point of faith. Like when there's something inside of you that desperately wants something, you never get it in, until you're able to have what I call this push point of faith. There, there's, it's like there's this wall you have to break through. It's, there's, there's like, it's like this, for those of you who lift weights, it's this rep that you have to achieve. It, it's like when you're on the last rep of a heavy set of weight and you've got the weight, it's off your chest and you're like halfway up and you're stuck. And like you, you haven't completely failed, but you haven't completely succeeded and you're just stuck pushing and you're thinking, am I going to be able to do this? Some of you are there spiritually, like some of you have started down a path spiritually, but it's gotten really hard and you're not sure that you're going to be able to push through this point in your life. And it's not just spiritual things. It, for those of us in relationships, when you go from boyfriend and girlfriend to pushing through the point of finally getting engaged to pushing through the point of finally getting married, like there are steps in life that are hard that you have to kind of push through. This happens in our careers, You don't just jump from one career to another without making a difficult push point decision. You don't just rise the ladder, take promotions. For an athlete, when you want to go from competing to winning, often there's a season that you have to push a little harder than you used to. When you're a Christian and you want to go from just having Jesus in your heart to really giving all your life to Jesus, there's a season that's very difficult as you push through that. For people who are volunteering a little bit casually, but they want to be committed and make more of a difference, there's a season of transition of pushing for that to happen. And for every church, like our church, that gets established and gets started, but believes God has called it to go to the next level, there's a season of pushing that's difficult. Our church is in one of these seasons right now. On September 21, we'll celebrate our three-year anniversary. And we started about eight weeks ago, probably our greatest season of pushing that we've ever had. And for the next three years, we're going to push harder than we've ever pushed before. But great seasons of pushing are always followed by great seasons of blessing. And the reality of our lives is the story of our lives as we look backwards ultimately is the story of where our desires and our willingness came together and we pushed. And we just said, I'm not going to stay where I am. Yet within this story, there are faith obstacles that keep us on on the other side of making the decision. We know there's a point we have to push through, but we've not yet done that. What keeps us from that? Well, with David, three things. One, anger. It says when David got to this push point of obedience to God, he was angry that God would ask him to do so much. 
And maybe that's where some of you are spiritually. You're mad at God because God's standards for your marriage are so much different than yours used to be. And the, the transition has been hard. You've been pushing so hard and it's like, God, for God's sake, let up now. You're angry at God. One of David's push points was fear. My gosh, this is the one I struggle with the most. It says David was afraid of God. David was afraid of what it meant to give everything to God. He was afraid of what that meant for him. He was afraid whether or not he could really accomplish that. I mean, I've been in a season of fear the last week or so at our church because we, we've been going through seasons of pushing and then seasons of blessing and seasons of pushing and seasons of blessing. And last December, we bought ground, 11 acres just up the road from here. And it was a great season of pushing that when it came together was a great season of blessing. But then we decided like we wanted to be on that ground. So we put in a road and we put in a parking lot and we redid the house and we brought in a fire hydrant. We did everything the city told us to do. And it was an extreme season of blessing. And then they sent the bill. Um, last week and like you know I got the invoice and it was like Christian we're done and I was like yes and it's like here's like you need to pay us now and we got a bill for $172,000 and like after I stopped crying I went to Danielle and I was like you know this I, I don't like these seasons of pushing what if we can't do this? I immediately started emailing my finance guys. We had a call tomorrow night. I'm like, what if we can't do this? We have the money to do it, but it's going to take our reserves down further than they've ever been. And as I prayed through this, God said, Christian, you have more trust in your savings account for your future than in me. Shame on you. What if I ask you to empty the whole bank account for the future of your church? I was like, Lord, that's too heavy for me. He says, all right, I'll spot you. And when I see that you can't get it, I'll, I'll take it push. This week, I, I got a bunch of stuff redone on my computer. I was out without email for a couple days. If I haven't emailed you back yet, forgive me. Um, and last night, finally, with new software and everything, everything loaded back onto my computer. And like emails from years ago started coming back onto my computer. And for some reason, when everything reloaded on my computer, there was one email in my draft box um, from 2011. Like I'm scrolling through, trying to get all my email stuff back together. And it's like, you've got this unsent draft. It was like from 2011. I thought, that's weird. But it was at the top of the page. I thought, that's weird. So I clicked on it, and here's what it was. May 4th, 2011, before 95% of you were a part of our church. It was an email that I was sending out to the 25 people around the country who would help us start our church. And the email was a report on the first service that we had ever had with the little launch team we had. And I went back and read that email last night. And it was like, hey, we had our first ever, we'd been doing Bible studies for three months. We had our first ever service where like we sang. Um, we had our first ever time where we actually set up or tore anything down and, and, you know, and it worked. We had our first time where we actually had a nursery and a kids ministry before that. Just all the kids hung out together. And in the report, I, had, I, I basically said, here's some praise moments. And what, the first one was we had 67 people. First time we've ever had more than 50 people as a part of our church. And, and then one of them was, um, you know, the, the, like the people actually worship. We never played music or sang together, but our people actually worship. Um, you know, we actually, we had volunteers that showed up early and they stayed late. We'd never ask anyone to do that before. But then I had this big prayer request. And as I read it, I just started laughing. I literally read it and started laughing. Because the last point was, here's what you can pray for. We've just purchased our portable church equipment. And this week we have to write our first installment check of $30,000. We've never written a check that big, and it will drain our savings more than it's ever drained it. Just pray that God would be there for us. And I looked at that, and I started laughing. I thought, all right, God, 
I hear you loud and clear because I remember that day. And I remember that day thinking, what if God doesn't come through? And I remember how God came through. And it was like God saying, Christian, if you will push and trust me and quit being afraid, if you do things my way, I promise you I'll be with you. And it was like God spoke to me this week and said, Christian, you're either going to die in fear or live in faith. Choose. And man, I don't know about you, but I'd rather live in faith than die in fear. You know? I mean, I'd rather live a life marked by faith than die in fear. And I've had some people speak extreme faith into me. Christian, this is going to be awesome. Christian, we can't wait to do this. Our finance team and I were looking at buildings two weeks ago, and they're like, this is going to come together. We've been meeting with bankers who are like, this is going to be great. And I've had some people speak extreme fear into me. I don't know if we can do this. What if the people don't give? You know, our church is really young. We don't have very many people. It's like God is saying, tune out fear, tune in faith, and move forward. Because if there's a desire and there's a willingness to do things my way, I will be with you. I don't know about you. I'd rather live in faith than die in fear. And then there's this faith obstacle of contemplation, which means this. We just think on it, think on it, think on it, think on it. Say, God, can I do this? Should I do this? I might do this. I might not do this. Okay, God, I think I'll do it. And like we'll be laying in bed thinking about it. We'll get up thinking about it. We'll be sitting in a meeting about something else, but we'll be thinking about this particular thing. And God puts these faith seeds in our life. He just allows us to think about him over and over and over and over again. For 90 days, I think, I think David got probably morning debriefs on the nation of Israel. And every morning he was thinking about that ark at Obed-Edom's house, not what was being presented to him. And I think David, as he sat down to dine in the king's palace there in Jerusalem, as he was eating, he was thinking about that ark at Obed-Edom's house. And finally, after three months, he said, guys, I've got a huge desire to have the power of God, the presence of God in my life. So let's figure out how to do this God's way and, and go get it. And we see David begin to walk the narrow path. Now, what is the narrow path? The narrow path is doing life God's way. And it's interesting because the picture of the narrow path is a picture of passion without apology. It's the picture of someone who says, I'm going to live this way because God said so. And like respectfully, I just don't care what anyone else says. I'm going to live this way because God said so. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 said, now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Now again, if we're reading this with our spiritual eyes open, we all have to stop and say, well, wait a minute, question, what changed? Like it appears that this like happened in the same day and David just said, let's go back and try again. No, it was 90 days, something changed. David was angry at God, didn't want to be near him. David was afraid of God, didn't want to be near him. David knew God's standards and said, I don't want to live my life that way. Yet something changed. What changed? The answer is this. David decided to follow God, God's way, instead of David's way. But first he had to find out what God's way was. In 1 Chronicles chapter 15, I won't ask you to turn there, but I'm going to read it to you. We see kind of a behind-the-scenes conversation of this particular narrative in Scripture. Like somebody who didn't write 1 Samuel, wrote 1 Chronicles, who was in the room. And we see exactly what changed to allow David, 90 days after he had failed on the broad road, to go walk the narrow road. And here's what it says in 1 Chronicles 15. It says, after David had constructed buildings for himself... In the city of David, he prepared a place for the ark of God and he pitched a tent for it. Then David said, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him 
forever. So David assembled all Israel in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to the place he prepared for it. He called together the descendants of Aaron and all the Levites. And David summoned Zadok and Abiathar the priest and Uriel and Isaiah and Joel and Shemaiah and El and Aminadab, all of the Levites. And he said to them, you are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, didn't bring it up the first time that the Lord, our God, broke out in anger against us. We didn't even ask him how to do it his way. We didn't even inquire of him about how to do it in a prescribed way. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders. They didn't touch it. They didn't put it on a cart. They carried it on poles with their shoulders as Moses had commanded what the Bible said in accordance with the word of the Lord. David, after 90 days, said, I want to be close to God, but I'm going to have to do it his way. So what does God tell me about my life? And they came in and said, if you're going to move the ark of God, you've got to do it this way. And David said, all right. So he's like, listen, call the, if the Levites had it, call the Levites. Tell the Levites that not only does it have to be them, but they have to be consecrated. And then call the dude who lives on the hill and tell his son, Ohio, and I, the other one's dead. Okay, so tell, tell them, oh, Ahio or whatever his name is, tell them you're not allowed to touch it, don't talk to it, don't get around it. Like we learned that God wants us to do it this way, so we're going to do it this way. And it says that David decided to start doing things God's way instead of his ways, and guess what? It worked. Now, this had to be much more laborsome. This had to take a whole lot more planning. This process had to be more time-consuming, and frankly, this was a whole heck of a lot harder than the way David wanted to do it. But the fact is, God's process is worth God's power. And you know what? Some of you need to push through the point of where you are doing things your way and wondering why God's not there to doing things his way and experiencing his power. Because remember our big idea, God's power is worth God's pathway. If you do it God's way, God is going to be there for you. They say, Christian, God's way, God's process for me financially, it's a little harder than what I'm doing right now. It's worth it. Christian, God's pathway for, for me as a parent, that's going to take a little transition. It's worth it. Christian, God's pathway for my schedule, like I'm pretty busy. It's worth it. Christian, God's ideas of me serving his church on a weekly basis, you know, that's really, it's worth it. Some of you have created your own Christianity that you're living in real soundly. But you're wondering why it doesn't feel like the presence and power of God are with you. It's because God said, that's not the way I said to do it. And the way I said to do it is harder. It's a little more focused. Not everyone's going to do it that way. But those who do, man, they're going to be blessed in what they do. Certainly David and his people were blessed. Look at verses 13 through 22 again. He did it God's way when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps. He sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. I think they all breathed a sigh of relief. Thought, okay, is everybody still alive? Let's keep going. Verse 14, wearing a linen ephod, which is what the priest wore. So David said, I'm not a priest, but I'm going to dress like, like I'm going to do as much as I can to do what God wants me to do. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. Now, I believe this looked identical to the celebration they had 90 days earlier, except this time their hearts were right. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing on the floor, she despised him in his heart. By the way, just note to you, 
When you really start living for God and honoring God, it's going to make the Christians around you mad. Your spouse is going to think you're crazy. Kids are going to think you flipped out. Your other Christian friends are going to say you're radical. You've joined a cult. Like when you really start following God and honoring God in everything you do, people are going to think you've lost your mind. Those closest to you. You just got to decide whether, whether following God is more important or following them. So verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord. They set it in its place inside the tent. David pitched for it. David sacrificed burnt offerings, fellowship offerings. After he finished sacrificing, gave everyone some food. Then he sent them home. Verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household. See, David knew his new spiritual condition would be a blessing on his household, but his household rejected it at first. His wife, Michael, the daughter of King Saul, came up to meet him. She said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls and his servants, and any, as any vulgar fellow would. Listen, being passionate for Jesus is going to change your identity. David used to dress like a king, used to wear his robes, used to ride a horse. Everyone knew that he was the king, that he was the most important in the crowd. She said, you changed your entire identity. Everybody's going to think you got this God thing going on. David's like, I'm cool with that. And as a matter of fact, if that's the only thing people know about me, that I love God, not that I'm a king of Israel, he, he used a phrase, he said, I'll be more humiliated, I'll be more undignified. He basically said, take all the dignity of being a king of Israel away from me. I just want to be a follower of God. I just want to do it God's way. Why? Because God's process is worth God's power. Now, now we use a phrase at our church, our mission statement. We say we exist to see people far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. And, and a passionate Christian is defined by 2 Samuel 6 and Matthew 7, 13 and 14, the teaching and context of those two together. Passionate Christian, they celebrate God by honoring God. It's, it's the very act of honoring God that becomes the celebration in their life. Not their public gatherings or what we call church. But their daily decisions, how do they honor God? Their actions and their reactions honor God so it becomes a celebration of who God is. Their pursuits in their life honor God so it becomes a celebration of who God is. The words that they use or refuse to use honor God and become a celebration of God. The grudges they refuse to hold anymore honor God and become a celebration of God. The punches they refuse to throw or that they continue to take honor God and become a celebration of God. The entertainment that they choose to allow in their house and in their head and in their eyes and in their ears honors God and becomes a celebration of God. The pleasure vices, where they say, I just really enjoy this, but to honor God, I should probably do this, become a celebration of God. So passionate Christians, they celebrate God by honoring God. Passionate Christians, they have a desire for God with a willingness to do the tough things that they need to do to get close to God. Passionate Christians don't say the willingness is easy. They just say the willingness is worth it. Passionate Christians treat people well who don't deserve it because they want to honor God. Passionate Christians love people who need love, who they really wouldn't care for otherwise because it honors God. Passionate Christians serve people even when they have to get up a little earlier or stay a little later. Because it honors God. Passionate Christians, they give generously, sacrificially, proportionately, even though it's difficult because they believe it honors God. Passionate Christians forgive those who have hurt them, not because it's the easiest or best way, but because it honors God. Passionate Christians purify their life because they believe Jesus' sacrifice deserves and demands that. Passionate Christians help where help is needed. 
in the church and in the world because they believe that honors God. And passionate Christians get faithful and they get tough and they refuse to be lazy and they refuse to be uncommitted spiritually because the sacrifice of God is a really big deal to them and they want to live their life to honor that. Now, in John chapter 2, we see the very first miracle that Jesus did, and it's interesting how the very first miracle of Jesus was introduced to the world. He was at a wedding in Cana, which was just like a mile away from where he grew up in Nazareth at kind of the bottom of a hill. One of his relatives was getting married. He was there. Nobody really knew he could do miracles yet. His mom knew that he was the son of God. Other than that, it was, eh, people were kind of wondering. He had a few disciples with him, and they ran out of wine at this wedding. His mom came to him. We think she was probably in charge of the wedding because she was so frantically worried about it. And said, so Jesus, I, like, I need you to help me. I don't know whether she was sending him to the store or whether she was, you know, wanted him to do a miracle, but she's like, you got to help me. And he's like, listen, my time hasn't come yet. Just kind of leave me alone. And Jesus' mother, Mary, looked at all the people standing around Jesus. It said the household servants and his disciples. And she gave them a phrase. She, she told them a phrase that I think is, is the most trustful phrase that's ever been spoken in the Bible. And I think the direction of this phrase is the safest place to be spiritually. She looked at all the people standing around. She said, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. I don't know whether he's going to tell you to go pick some grapes and stomp on them. Like, I, have, I don't know whether he's going to tell you. I don't know what he's going to tell you. You can trust him. Do whatever he tells you to do. And Jesus ended up telling him how to get everything perfect for his miracle to be displayed. But it began with trust in Jesus and his plan for our life. Do whatever he tells you. Passionate Christians, they do what God tells them to do. When it's easy, when it's hard, when it's fun, when it's difficult, when it fits in their schedule, when their schedule has to fit around it. Passionate Christians do what God tells them to do. And then like David, David simply tells those people around him who don't understand, without apology, here's how I believe God wants me to live my life. And this is how I'm going to do it. Because God's power is worth God's pathway. Now listen, here's the reality today in this church. Every one of you are laying on some kind of spiritual bench press. And you have something you're pushing through. It's an issue in your marriage. It's an issue with your kids. It's an issue with your finances. It's an issue with just being able to get out of bed on Sunday morning. It's an issue with being a servant to others when you don't get anything in return. There's some spiritual issue you are pushing through today. Let me speak faith, not fear into you. You're going to be okay. You're going to push through. All the blessings that God promises and protection that he offers are there if you'll do it his way. Just keep pushing. But imagine this. Imagine that every person in this room would push through whatever faith push point they're facing today that we would stop contemplating and that we would act, that we would quit being afraid and that we would have courage, that we would quit being angry and we would just accept, like Job said, the good in life with the bad in life and keep moving forward. What if we would all do that as individuals? What if we had a church full of individuals that every time they came to a faith push point, they pushed through? You know what would happen? We as individuals collectively would become a church would become a place where God's presence is honored, where God's word is obeyed willingly, and we're passionate people who live very close to the presence of God make a huge difference in the world for him.
Now, folks, I don't know about you, but when people talk about our church, I want them to talk about God's presence being honored there. I want them to talk about God's people who radically obey in the miracles they've seen happen in their lives because of that. And I want them to see a group of people who are so close to God, they'll do anything in the life of anybody to help make a difference. But for that to happen, I got to push. You got to push. We don't want to do it the easy way because the end of that road is destruction. But if we will walk through the narrow gate and we will do it God's way, God says it's going to be a little harder, might be a little more difficult, might be a few less people on the road. But man, the end of that road, the destination of blessing, proximity to God that you're going to have, like David, you give everything in your life to have it if we could just realize it for an instant. Would you pray with me this morning?